Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. You know, I was thinking about, as we were taking the offering um, this morning the first in first service, um, I was thinking about Jesus. Remember him? <laughs> and I was thinking about, I think there's at least two stories about Jesus standing on the seashore and the disciples are fishing. And they're fishing and they're not catching anything. And one of the stories, Jesus asks, hey, have you caught anything? Which is kind of common for fishermen to ask other fishermen. Have you caught anything? Like, no, we've been fishing all night, we haven't caught anything. Well, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Remember, remember that story? And I'm like, uh, first of all, I'm thinking like, if I fished all night and didn't catch anything, probably I tried both sides. I'm just thinking like, thank you. Thanks for the advice, but tried both sides. But they're like, okay. So they, they throw their nets on the other side of the boat. And you know the story. They catch so many fish in the, one of the stories that their nets start to break and they... And they've motioned for the, their competitors, come over and help us. And they get all this fish, right? And then I think it's John who says, I think it's the Lord. <laughs> this story is kind of funny because it says, and when Peter realizes it's the Lord, he puts on his coats and jumps in the lake. I'm like, don't you take off your coat and jump in the lake? I want to look good for God. You know, that's, some people are still trying to do that. <laughs> Anyway, the story is intriguing this morning as we were just taking the offering because I was thinking about, can you imagine if they caught like three fish and they're like, I think it's the Lord. He's always stingy. <laughs> Isn't it funny that they recognized the Lord when they caught more fish than they could contain? Then they go, that must be the Lord. He always does this big thing. And, you know, think about it. <laughs> That's all right. That's right. They weren't sport fishing. This is the way they made a living. And all I want to say is that if you're in a tough financial place, would you stand? Because I I feel like this prophetic declaration over you all. Some of you are like, I'm not in a tough place, but I'm standing anyway. (laughs) Can always deal with more. (laughs) I'd like to get so much my nets are breaking. I, I love too that the fact that, you know, their competitors have to come over and help them. And you know, I just think that God wants to create a network. <laughs> Did you get that? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're just anointed. On a serious note, I really do believe that God, that God is the God of more than enough. He's the God of pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. People are like, are you involved in the prosperity gospel? Well, I'm not involved in the pro- poverty gospel, I can tell you that. So, Lord, I just release a blessing on all these folks who are standing, on our family who will be standing watching Bethel TV. I pray right now you give them pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. You said that if you ask, seek, and knock, that you'll receive. (laughs) And, Lord, I just pray that you would give them extraordinary abundance. I mean, beyond what they ask or think. And I'd like you to say, I receive that for myself. That's a good word. All right. To grab a hand, we're going to pray for the message. You can also get a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend this way. <laughs> Many people have attributed their marriages to me. And I'm praying for their tithing children. <laughs> That's a little joke there. Lord, we bless what you're doing here today. And we pray, God, that you would bring great encouragement and great revelation to your people today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk about restoring our broken city. I, I, it, it would seem, wouldn't it seem a little weird to have any other message today? I mean, you know, the place is full of smoke. People are still, you know, uh, not in their homes. Lots of people still lost everything, and we're in the midst of it. It would be kind of like the elephants in the room to preach on anything else would be sort of strange. And um, I, I want to repeat... As prophetic declaration, because I feel like sometimes when we're in crisis as a city or as a, as a people or as a person, that one of the best things we can do is remember what God said about us and remember that this crisis is not our destiny. 
How many of you know all things work together for good in the end? So if it's not good, it's not the end. And I propose that what's happening is not the end. And so uh, I want to repeat a prophetic uh, act that happened some time ago. You, I know you've heard this story if you've been around very long. But Bill and I were in uh, Vacaville, and we were at a prayer meeting for pastors and leaders. There's just maybe a hundred of us. And I think Graham Cook had called the meeting. And we were just doing, it was a very simple prayer meeting. Someone would get up and share for two or three minutes, and then we would pray into that, whatever that subject was. And we just did that for two or three hours. And, uh, and it was just kind of a free flow kind of uh, prayer time. And while we're uh, in the midst of praying, hi, baby. This is my woman. You're turning all red. What does that mean? <sighs> Love you, baby. And while we're in the midst of the prayer meeting, the Lord came in. No. <laughs> Now, while we're in the midst of the prayer meeting, um, somebody came over, this, this gal named uh, Jean, she came over to Bill and whispered in Bill's ear, um, I believe the Lord is looking for one city. I won't get this exactly right, but I, uh, the word's exactly right, but I believe the Lord is looking for one city that he'd pour his spirit out on, and that city would be so extravagantly blessed that it would actually cause a domino effect, that other cities would come to see what God does in that city, and they literally would model their city after your city, after a city. And that, that city would be like a city on a hill that couldn't be hidden. And while he's saying that, Bill is getting ready to say, I believe that city is ready. And before he could get that out, she said, I believe that city is ready. About a little while later, uh, again, I, timing, I don't remember, but in the same prayer meeting, another man comes over who's actually a prophet also. And he said to Bill, Bill, I have this word. I believe that the Lord is looking for one city. <laughs> And he begins to repeat what Gene had just said less than an hour ago. And Bill goes, I believe that's, that Reading is that city. And the guy's like, I believe that Reading is that city too. And what I'm getting at is that I believe that the Lord has his hand on our city in such an extravagant way that literally that, the, that this city will make the Lord famous, or if you will, the Lord will make this city famous. I believe it goes both ways. And I've been receiving these prophetic words from different people from around the world, and the Lord uh, gave me a prophetic word, and I sort of homogenized them, homogenized. I put them into one paragraph. <laughs> Never try to sound intelligent when you lack intelligence. <laughs> I'd just like to read it to you. This is a prophetic declaration. It's probably uh, 10 different prophetic words. It's all, all with exactly the same theme. Uh, and, it, and it goes like this. The restoration of our city will be a sign and a wonder. Cities all around the world will come to see the wisdom, generosity, collaboration of the rebuilding of our city. We will emerge from this disaster with a thriving economy, a beautiful topography, can everybody say amen, amen. and a new identity. The land itself is going to cooperate, cooperate with the restoration process, and God is literally going to heal our land. That's just a good word right there. Turn to Isaiah 61. I've read this scripture so many times in the last three weeks. When I was a brand new believer, about a year old, the Lord actually gave me this scripture, Isaiah 61. I didn't know much about the Bible at the time, um, but the, how many of you have a life message? Like, you have lots of messages, but you have a life message. How many of you have a life message? How many of you have a life verse or a few verses that are, like, you like the Bible, but these verses are really your verses? <coughs> Sorry. Isaiah 61 are, is verses one through five, four. One through four are my life verses. You can borrow them, but you cannot steal them. And so I want to just share these verses with you. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the broken heart, to speak release to captives and freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord the day of vengeance of our God, to grant all those who mourn in Zion and give them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness, a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Listen to the, the last verse there. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations and rebuild ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. You know, probably like you, 
Your friends around the world hear about Reading and the fire, and they start writing you, right? They're like, are you okay? Um, how's, is, your, is your family okay? How, did, you, are you, did you have to evacuate? I was going to say, did you get evicted? <laughs> okay, let's slow down and let's think a little. <laughs> and people ask you how, how you're doing, you know, rightly so. And of course, if you're, if you're a, a public person, you can imagine how many more emails and text messages and all that you get. So I get hundreds of text messages. And the very first night of the fire, I was in Washington, D.C., and Kathy was texting me that they were, had to evacuate. Thankfully, they were already in, in Susanville in our little farmhouse there, and our horses were all there. So it wasn't quite as traumatic for my own family because they had already moved. But I, I was thinking about, and you know, everybody was like, the fire was moving, there was the uncertainty of like, how bad is this going to get? And, and of course, it, it, was, it was getting really bad. And, uh, and so I was, after I talked to Kathy, I was just praying. And something came over me. I, I'm going to try to describe it. I felt like the Lord said to me, you were born for this day. Now, normally when I think that, I think, you know, for this season, like this 70 years of your life, this 50 years of your life. But I actually felt like the Lord said, you were actually born for this day. And I reminded me of Isaiah 61. That was the verses that the Lord gave me as a young man. As an 18-year-old boy. The Lord gave me those verses. And he said, these will be the verses of the rest of your life. And of course, I was a captive. I was someone who I didn't even realize it when the Lord gave me that word. But you know, a year later, I would have a nervous breakdown and be demonized for three and a half years. And I didn't realize that I, was one of, I would literally be one of the captives. I would literally be one of the prisoners. I would literally be one of the people who, were, who, were, who had a broken mind and a broken soul that he was healing. But the part that I realized that night is that he literally anointed me to bring beauty where there was ashes. And I felt like the Lord said, and by the way, this isn't a word just for me. I'm sharing this personal word because I'm one of your leaders and I believe that this mantle fell on us. I felt like the Lord said, you were born for this day. You are to rise up in darkness. Arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, deep darkness covers the earth. And literally deep darkness was on us, right? I mean, literally deep darkness was on us. But the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings of the brightness of your rising. Look all around. They all come to you. Get this. Kings will come bringing their wealth with them. And I felt like the Lord said, you are to rise in this darkness. And this city will become a sign and a wonder to the world. And I began to think about the restoration of our city. And by the way, how many understand that the first three verses are talking about the broken, the captive, the prisoner, the depressed, the discouraged. And God says that he's going to heal them. And then verse 4 says, and then they shall return. Who? The broken, the captive, the prisoner. Are you with me? The people who were broken, who got well, suddenly became the rebuilders of the broken city. How many understand when God heals you, it's on to a bigger purpose. If God heals you of depression, how many know the goal isn't to sit at home and sipping suds and being thankful that you're healed of depression. The goal is to go give it to somebody else. The goal is to go find other depressed people and say, hey, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If he did it for me, he'll do it for you. I remember when I, I I've told the story so many times, but when the Lord released me from the demonic oppression, which was three and a half years, I remember driving my car, I can remember this scene as if it was yesterday. I was driving my car, I was one day out of torment one day i have my mind back for one day and i said to the devil you will be sorry that you mess with the wrong person for three and a half years because i will set every single person free and let them know you are a powerless liar there is something in you that has to come out of you when the kingdom become, when the kingdom that's in you becomes the kingdom around you, how many know you have to be involved in the restruction? <laughs> in the restruction. Thank you, baby. I was wondering if anyone was going to be pastoral in the front row. 
thank you. Hopefully it's all good. <laughs> it's going to be a little late if it's not. But anyway, once God heals you, it's so that you can be a healer. Once God deliver you, it's so that you can be a deliverer. Once God restores you, it's so that you'll be a restorer. I'm saying if you have a testimony, you have something to give. I want to just walk us through a couple of verses. Isaiah 61 says, And to grant all those who mourn in Zion. I was thinking about it this morning. Like, FEMA is granting people money who have lost things. By the way, you should get in on that. You only have 60 days from the time they declared it to be a disaster to get some FEMA money if you're qualified. But they have grants. But we've been anointed to grant. We can literally grant people things. Beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. I actually have something to grant people. You look at me with that stupid look. I don't know what that look means, but once in a while, the Bethel look is... <clears throat> Where do I sign up for that? Do you remember... When, you remember Jesus, when he <laughs> sent his disciples out? And he sends them out and he says, listen, I want you, when you go to a city, I don't want you to go from house to house. I want you to go to one house. Remember the story? And he says, and when you get there, I want you to release your peace. And if people that are there are not people of peace, I want you to take it back. <laughs> Have you ever read that and like, how the heck does that work? <laughs> you know, you go over to someone's house and you're like, whoosh. And you're like, kids are still fighting. I'm leaving. Shaking off dust. I mean, have you ever, and anyone else ever like found those scriptures to be a little mystical? Like, but also like, there's a reality that there are things that you can release that are tangible but not visible. Like you actually have something to give that can't be seen, but can be experienced. The most repeated commentary on Kathy, I get to brag about her, and now she's in the service. The most repeated commentary in 43 years on Kathy's life is that she brings peace wherever she goes. We've been in situations in, in, in Weaverville, I'll, I'll talk about Weaverville a little bit, where there were teams of people who didn't get along, like never got along. And we're like, and I remember the elders going, why don't we put Kathy over that? We put Kathy over that. For the next 12 years, they get along great until we leave. <laughs> we'll not talk about what happened after, but I'm saying she became a catalyst. Like she's, it's not like I say something so people get along. That's like a spirit of reconciliation. But this thing is like when this person's in the room, they just release a ha. Huh, you know, someone would say, oh, mama's home. But it's more than a role I play. It's a spirit I exude. And so I want to say that one of the most powerful things that you can actually do is just be present. I'm talking about with some of our broken people. Just be present. The next thing, uh, verse, um, it says... <clears throat> that we're going to grant all those who mourn in Zion. I, I, I really feel strongly about this. Like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, every culture has a side effect. I love Bethel's culture. Like, we do joy really well. We do fun really well. Some of you are so quiet, you're like, okay, what's the side effect? <laughs> I mean, we say things all the time like, you know, the, the kingdom of God is not eat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. We're like, joy is a third of the kingdom. The side effect of our culture is that we don't do pain very well. And we kind of see it as like, it's our job to cheer people up. So it's like, if someone's mourning, we're like, Okay, cheer, cheer, cheer. Holy, holy, holy. Ghost, ghost, ghost. How are you doing? Ha, ha. Okay, ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. You know, you almost feel bad for feeling bad. You're like, I feel so bad. I don't want to go to church because then I'll have to feel good because I don't want to feel good right now. I'm being a little bit funny, but my point is, is that 
we tend to be resistant to people who need the process of mourning so that they can get to comfort. And what I'm getting at is sometimes in our culture, and by the way, I love this culture, I help build this culture, but sometimes in the midst of our culture, we prematurely super or subvert the process of mourning that's to lead to comfort. And because people are prematurely, if you will, brought out of the process, sometimes the grief comes out in other ways. Simply because the process of wholeness is I mourn to a place of comfort. Now, I I know right now some people are thinking, yeah, but people get stuck in that. We'll talk about that in a minute. And it is true, some people get stuck in that. We know that. But my point is, is that it's important for us to mourn with people who mourn so that we can rejoice with people who rejoice. And I would propose that none of, well, first of all, I think you're kind of weird if you like pain. So I think it's, it's okay to not like pain. But not to be afraid of pain. I, I know, like, when the first about 28 years that I was married to my first wife, <clears throat> which is the only one I have forever, Kathy would tell me things like, you know, today the kids were da-da-da, and, and I go into, like, fix mode, right? Because, I mean, I think men are like, we fix things, we kill things, we climb things. <laughs> so Kathy would tell me a story, and I would just immediately go into, okay, those are my three categories of things I'm good at. And I start moving in, you know, let's get this, no, let's get this tank out of the shop here. And she'd be like, I don't want you to fix it. And I'd be like, why are you telling me then? Like, why would you tell me about something if you don't want me to fix it? You know, and she'd say things like, when I tell you about the kids, then you're going to go out and kill them. <laughs> By the way, because we're streaming, not literally kill them. Punish them severely, but not, not kill them. <laughs> I just didn't have any value for, if you share it, you must want me to do something about it. And she's saying, I want you to be in it with me. I want you to have empathy and compassion for the situation. I'm not asking you to fix it. For literally at least half of our marriage, I did not get that. Now when she shares, I'm like, okay. Should I offer a solution? Or work up a tear? I'd propose that a lot of our city is in the midst of this cycle. And that it is not to, it is not, it, ha, it is premature to try to get people out of this cycle. They don't need to be cheered up. Most, there's going to be people in different places. Most people don't need to be cheered up. They need you to jump in their pain and say, I get you. I understand you and not try to fix them. If you're anything like me, if I see a situation that there's pain involved in and I don't have a solution, I tend to not want to be involved in it. Someone loses a child. What do you say? Well, I can tell you if you come up with with an answer in the middle of your pain, it won't be the right one anyway because the answer will just be to take care of your pain. So I, I, I want to say that our city needs you But they don't necessarily need you to be the answer man or the answer woman. They just need you to be there with them. In Psalms chapter 126, verse 5, it says, Those who sow in tears, do you know this verse? Shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. Here's here's what I wrote about this. God often arrogates the seeds of extreme blessing of our next season with the tears of mourning in the one we're in now. This uh, This is a beautiful picture in the agricultural age of someone who's literally sowing their field with seed, 
while they weep. There's a couple of things to think through. Probably they're sowing with tears because the seed they're sowing, they probably need to eat. In other words, they've left their children with not enough food. So they're sowing, but they're doing it with tears, knowing that if they don't sow this year, think about what next crop is going to be like nothing. In other words, a great way to, to, to create a poverty cycle is to not sacrifice in one season so you can prosper in another. Sometimes you have to sacrifice in one season so you can prosper in another. So it says they, that, that literally they're sowing with tears, but they're going to come with, and reap with joyful shouting. That they're going to, how's it say it here? He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, shall come again with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with them. The second part that I think is so beautiful is literally they're sowing seed and their tears, you can just envision them, their tears are falling from their eyes as they sow the seed. Those tears are part of what's watering that seed. And here's my prophecy for you. Whatever you lost in tears, God is going to replace and you're going to come with joyful shouting. This is a prophetic declaration. God's going to use your tears to water your next season. And it's going to be extravagant and expansive. If you're in the room and you lost your house or you lost your possessions or you lost anything, you've had a big loss. It doesn't even have to be the fire. Obviously, we're thinking about the fire right now. Would you stand? Because I feel like I'm supposed to prophesy this over you right now. I believe that there's a power released when the Lord gives you a word. Please stand. And if you're watching by Bethel TV, you can just stand up in your front room or wherever you're at and just receive this. I just want to prophesy this over you that here, literally, God will irrigate with the seeds of extreme blessing of their next season with the tears of mourning in this one. And I bless every single one of you that's standing. I bless your season. I bless this time of mourning that not only would you be comforted, but the next season would be extravagant like the catching of fish that breaks nets. That literally, that you're, if you lost a house, you'd get a better one. That if you've lost possessions, you would even get better ones. That even those of you that have heirlooms and you've lost things like that, that literally your, your, your relatives, your friends would send you better ones. I bless that in you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The last part of this uh, Isaiah word and he's going to give him garlands instead of ashes. The word garland comes from the word glorify, to boast, or to show glory, or to become honorable. Literally, God's saying, your ashes are going to be your boast. The point that he's making in Isaiah is that God's going to do something so powerful out of your ashes. The testimony is going to be so powerful out of your ashes, you're literally going to boast about the way God saved you. You're literally going to boast... You're actually going to brag about how God delivered you and how and the testimony is going to be so powerful it'll be a part of your the book of your life. That's a good word. Much better than your response. <clears throat> no, too late. Brought my encouragement with me. I want to talk a little bit about the actual restoration of our city. Um, turn to Nehemiah. We got a few minutes. Nehemiah is, his name means comforter. I've taught on the book of Nehemiah probably 10 times here. It's one of my favorite books. His name means comforter. And he is tasked with the restoration of the walls and gates of a city, which we'll talk about in a minute. But how many understand the Holy Spirit's called comforter? <laughs> and Isaiah, um, and Nehemiah is responsible for the restoring of the walls and the gates. And Isaiah 60 says, you'll call your walls salvation and your gates praise. How many understand that in the story of Nehemiah is actually a beautiful picture of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives? That he's restoring our walls of salvation, and he's restoring our access places, our gates. So um, Nehemiah hears about the destruction of the walls of his city when he's serving King Azusius, which is the king that Esther served. And he's a cupbearer to the king. And one of the rules of being a cupbearer is you can't be depressed in the presence of the king. Nehemiah hears from his brother that the walls are torn down, that the city's really in destruction, even though they've rebuilt the, the, the temple uh, of Solomon's temple. I mean, yeah, they've rebuilt the temple. And so they're, they're, um, 
Nehemiah hears about this and he's, he's very sad. He's serving the king. He's trying to like not act unhappy, but it's not working. And the king says to him in a harsh way, what is this sadness? Why are you sad in the presence of the king? And he says to the king, I've just heard that my, my hometown, my city is broken down. The walls are burning with fire and there's destruction everywhere. How many understand when we're talking about walls and gates of a city in the Old Testament, we're not talking about like your fence between you and your neighbor's yard. We're talking about homeland security. We're talking about these walls and gates. You can imagine, remember in New Orleans when the, the levee broke and this, there was looting everywhere? We're talking about a city that's completely open to thieves and looting. The, the city is in turmoil. So he says to the king, he tells the king the situation, and the king immediately changes his attitude and says, what can I do for you? And Nehemiah, I love this, Nehemiah does this one-minute prayer. He said, I asked the Lord what I should do. And he said to the king, I would that you would send me back to restore the walls, and I'll come back in this given amount of time. And the king says, okay, you are commissioned to go back and restore the walls of your city. Isn't it beautiful that the king commissions the Holy Spirit? You didn't, I don't know if you got that. In chapter 2, in the process of Nehemiah's restoration process, verse 7, he's having a conversation with the king. He said, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I've come to Judea. And he goes on to say, can you send a letter to Ashpen, the keeper of the king's forest? And can you send a letter to the kings around the area of Jerusalem and ask them to help me? I thought this was really beautiful. So the king sends letters to other kings saying, hey, I'm sending Nehemiah. Can you give him some lumber? Can you give him some servants? Hey, can you let him pass through your country so he doesn't have to go all the way around? And other kings are with them, with Nehemiah, because the king has made a decree that the favor, the favor of the king is on Nehemiah. Are you with me? I was reading that story when the fires uh, broke out, and I was thinking about everybody on our team. We have a big team, 700 employees, 400 interns, and lots of volunteers. Thank you for all those people who volunteered in here from all over the world. So beautiful. So thankful. I got off a plane and 200 Australians got off the planes, flew into San Francisco. Did you see that? To come and help our firefighters. Amazing. Anyway, story after story. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But I, I was thinking about how Nehemiah asked the king to send letters to other kings and help. And I just had this you know, kind of epiphany. You know, There are times to leverage the favor that's on your life. So I got my... My, my little iPhone out, and I went through all my contacts, and I put together a, just a short text. It might be 50 words, and it basically said this, John, I hope you're well. Our city's on fire, and we're in a crisis. I don't know if Bethel's ever asked help for help before. I, I don't think I ever have. We're usually on the giving side. But right now, we're in tremendous need, and we're in a bad crisis. And frankly, we need your help. Would it be possible for you to help us? We're trying to raise a million dollars to give a thousand dollars to everyone who's lost everything in the fire just as a way to help just the bare minimums. And I sent 40 of those text messages out to the kings that I know, leaders of cities, leaders of churches, leaders of movements. And within hours, people began to respond. I want to tell you about a few of them. Joyce Meyer's ministry called us before I texted them. And, said, and David Myers called and said, Chris, how can we help you? We see you're in a crisis. They sent us $125,000. Gateway Church sent us $100,000. TBN, you know TBN Network? Sent us $100,000 and they didn't even get my text. Covenant Church in Texas sent us $50,000. Catch the Fire sent us $45,000. Uh, Rodney Howard Brown sent us $20,000. Bethel Cleveland sent us $15,000. Uh, um, Grace Church in Franklin took last week's offering, the entire offering, and sent us to us $70,000. I 
I mean, I could just read you Sojourn Church, uh, um, Word of Life Church, Bethel Church of Atlanta, Faith Church, Dream Center brought two containers of supplies and gave us an offering. Just people from everywhere. Uh, Lisa and John Brevere sent money to us. Just people from everywhere. Yeah, can we just thank them? So beautiful. So thankful for people. Rick Warren's teams are coming. We have more teams coming from all over the place. And it's just something special when people, kings, reach out and help us. So thankful for them. This is part of the restoration process that we reach out where we have favor and we say, can you help us? How many know it's not for us, it's for our own city? $1.2 million came in in four days. I'm so thankful for the firemen and the policemen and the sheriff. So thankful. So thankful. Beautiful. The utility workers, like Kathy and I were late in a restaurant the other night and there was a bunch of guys in brown, in brown uniforms. I'm like, what do you guys do? And they're like, we're, we're, we're here fixing the, uh, the utilities. We're, we're, in fact, they were working on the Weaverville utilities. And they said, we've been working 18-hour shifts just to try to keep the electricity on. I'm like, these are things you don't even think about these people. Uh, there was a, a story about the, uh, the, the water system um, in, uh, uh, in Reading. And uh, evidently, there's three different water stations that we have, and one of them was under siege, and all the employees left, but the manager of that place got, just went out and cut down all the trees around there and saved the, the water system in Reading by himself. That's crazy. We're, we're going to see more stories that emerge, and the volunteers, guys... The volunteers, you know, I don't know if you guys had the privilege of being up here during the distribu- when this was a distribution center for, I think, 14, 15, 16 days. But there were literally, I think there was almost 2,000 volunteers, people working 18-hour shifts. The first five days, I, think, I don't think any of our leaders worked less than 18 hours. They were here from early morning to late at night and just, just working. The uh, Red Cross said they had never seen a distribution center so organized and so well run as this one in their entire history of them being in the Red Cross. <laughs> I was thankful for our governor. We haven't seen eye to eye on everything. But I was thankful for, for him and our, and our president. You know, they're, they're actually, you know, kind of famous for not getting along. And yet they put aside their differences in brought in federal aid, and so thankful for all those times. And so we got to make sure that we stay thankful. We were in a, a restaurant. This is probably a week ago. We were in a restaurant, and there was a bunch of firemen in there, uh, like 50 or 60 of them in different groups. And uh, when they got up to leave, they got up to leave in different groups at different times. And as the first group got up to leave, everybody in the restaurant spontaneously got up and just started clapping for them. Each group as they left, and we, we get outside, and one of the firemen said, I've been a fireman for 23 years, and I've never been honored like this anywhere in community. We have restaurants that are literally feeding people. I think From the Hearth is feeding people still. It's just crazy. I think Joe Wong gave 1,000, 3,000 meals out. I mean, people all over just doing amazing stuff. Like, our city is going to be famous for the restoration of...
going to make a couple more points out of the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, he receives favor from the king and from the kings around the surrounding area. And he ends up in the city. Now remember, Nehemiah is actually not a citizen of the city that is actually being destroyed. He's actually a citizen. He's actually a cupbearer to a king. He actually lives in a palace. And this is what it says. Verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. And I rose in the night. I just want to say this. It is encumbered upon us to rise in the night. It is encumbered upon us to rise in dark times. Are you with me? I rose at night, a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone what my God was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and to the refuge gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broke down and its gates were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night to the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the gate again and returned. The officials, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor did I yet tell the, the Jews and the priests and the nobles and the officials or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate, its gates are burned with fire. Now let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we'll no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let's arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the, the Horabite and Tobiah the Amorite official and Gershom the Arab heard of it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. I just want to uh, say a few more things uh, the rebuilding of our cities, uh, I think, really important. And I love what Nehemiah does. The first thing he does is he inspects the walls. I'd like to say that you don't have faith if you can't look with the problem and still be hopeful. Let me say that one more time. Sometimes what's called faith is just actually denial. I know I don't have any money, so I won't balance my checkbook. That's not called faith. That's called dumb. <laughs> Nehemiah looks at the walls. He actually goes from wall to wall, making a list a to-do list, if you will. Here are all the things that are wrong with the walls. And in the midst of making a list of the destruction, he's full of hope. Help me understand, when you can look at your problem and you have hope, that's called, that's real faith right there. And then he says to the officials, after he makes this list, he tells them about the bad situation we are in. How many know it's not our city's in trouble, it's not the city's in trouble, it's our city's in trouble. <clears throat> Let me just say that again. It's not that the city's in trouble. It's that our city's in trouble. I propose that we can't, you're not going to fix what you don't take ownership of. So I, I love that he says, do you see the tough situation that we are in? And I want to remind you again, Nehemiah's not in a bad situation. He doesn't even live there. But he makes the situation, he makes the problem his problem. <laughs> and thirdly, he reminds them of the things that God did already. Hey, these kings gave us lumber. These servants are coming to help us. These guys are bringing stones. These guys let us pass through their country. And he, he's, he's recounting that the favor of God is on them to fix this crisis. And when he, when he says all that, they say, let's arise and build. There's something of courage that comes in to the people when other people go, we can do this. Let me tell you why. God is with us, with us. The favor of God is on us. The success of God is, is for us. But I want to tell you one more thing that, that is, it, we need to be aware of. Not to make us fearful, but how many understand that when we arise in dark seasons, there will be pushback. When you, when you arise to rebuild, there'll be the Sam Bellots and the Tobias. There'll be the people. Tobiah means good for nothing. They'll... <laughs> There'll be the good-for-nothings that rise against you. I want to say that if you aren't resisted, you're probably not doing anything worth resisting. One of my favorite quotes is, uh, I, think, I think Bill came up with it, if you don't run into a demon once in a while, you might be going the same way. I love it. I'll finish by just telling you the rest of the story. 
as they start to rebuild the wall, they are suddenly resisted. And the people who are rebuilding become terrified. Now remember that the walls have been broken down for 114 years. For 72 years, they've tried to rebuild these walls. They have contracted this job out many times. 72 years, they've not rebuilt one wall and not set up one gate in 72 years. What they couldn't do in 72 years, Nehemiah did in 52 days. Is that amazing? Here's what he did, and I think this is a real model for us. So immediately, they started to rebuild the walls and figured out right away it wasn't going to work because as they built, the workers got terrified. So Nehemiah said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Listen, time out. Stop the wall building. And he, t- he takes all the people and he stations them in the wall to rebuild the wall that's by their house. So he, now he allots, okay, the Johnson family, you're over there. Okay, you guys live over there? Okay, you rebuild that wall over there. Okay, the, the Jones family, you're over here. You're going to build the wall right next to your house. So that the wall, the, benef- <laughs> the work of the wall is actually benefiting you directly. The next thing he does, he goes, okay, we're not just going to have men doing this. From now on, we're doing this in families. He gives everybody a sword. And he goes, here's what you're going to do. You're going to work with one hand, and you're going to hold the sword with the other. And then you're going to take shifts. If it takes two hands, you're going to have one person working, and you're going to have, these, and the, and you're going to have other members of the family with swords protecting the worker. Then you're going to reverse, and he's going to do the work, and he's going to hold the sword. So everyone has a sword, and everyone has if you will, a hammer. When the enemy saw the way families protected the workers and the way the workers were the families, it says they lost heart. Is that good? They lost heart. I love this part. In chapter 4 of Nehemiah, well, they, they, they begin to like get really mad and they, they, and they say to Nehemiah, you're a loser, you know, I'm, we're telling the king we're going to kill you at night. He's going through all this stuff. And they say to Nehemiah, this is one of my favorite parts. Now it was reported to Sambel, Tobiah, the Gershom, and the rest of the enemies that had rebuilt the wall, and no breach remained in it, although we hadn't set up the doors and the gates yet. Then Sambel and Gershom sent a message saying, Come, let us meet together in, the Cher- in Cherim, in the, in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. I like that he wanted to meet with them in Ono. I'd like to make a big suggestion. Don't go down in the valley of Ono, or you will know why they called it Ono. And Nehemiah sends this message to them. I love this. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down to you. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? They go on to try to scare him some more, and he says this, and I love this. Should a man like me be afraid? And then he goes, I will not be afraid. And it says, and when Nehemiah said, I will not be afraid, when he chose to not be afraid, he says, then I discerned that the Lord had not sent them. Until he chose courage, he didn't know if the voice was God or not. It says, and when, and when I chose courage, I knew that they did not speak from the Lord. And then it goes on to say, and we finished the work in the month of Elu, in 52 days. I'd like to propose a few things. One, this is a family affair. I know that we all want to protect our children from the crisis our city's in, and I'd propose the best thing we can do is expose our children appropriately, appropriately to the miracle that we're a part of. Secondly, I think it's important that we make this a family affair, that every single member of our family from the youngest to the oldest, has a part in the restoration of our city. Whether it's making a sandwich for a worker, or taking water to people who are in trouble, or ashing out, which we have this opportunity, I think we talked to you earlier in the service, about being on a team, or handing out groceries, or whatever the situation needs. How many know this is not a one-month thing, the next two years? Whatever it is, we, whatever it is our city needs, that we find out and we make ourselves available. And the last thing I'll say is this. The greatest crisis in things like this are not, well, of course, the loss of life is the greatest. So sorry that we've lost eight people in our city. I mean, how do you, 
What do you say about that? Like, that's an eternal crisis. But often the trauma from lost homes is bigger than the rebuilding of a structure. So it's really important that we get into the lives of people and we mourn with them, that we help them. And I want to say this. I, I wrote these four things down real quickly. Be, helpful, be thankful, be helpful, be hopeful, and be powerful. Sometimes when we have a crisis like this, we feel powerless. And I want to say this. You're not powerless. You're not powerless. Yes, you might have been a victim, but how many understand that now you're a victor? And so I want us to pray. Would you all stand, please? And just finish with this. Be thankful, be helpful, be hopeful, and be powerful. Just grab a hand right now. Let's pray for our city. Lord, we're so thankful for the leaders that you've placed in our city. Kind of like Esther at a time like this. And Lord, we're thankful that you, you entrusted us with this city. And Lord, I pray that you would inspire every single person in this room and every single person watching us by Bethel TV, all of our family everywhere, the kings that are with us would actually be lending their strength to our city. And that literally what should take years would actually be done in months and be done in such an excellent way that people would say, there must be a God. I bless every single person in both in this room, watching by Bethel TV, and in our city. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.